Okay, if you have Bibles with you, please open up to the Gospel of John, chapter 2. I'm preaching through the Gospel of John. I started a new series a few weeks ago, and we've made it all the way through chapter 1. Today we begin taking a look at chapter 2. So much rich stuff in this wonderful Gospel. Just so tremendous, uh, line after line, and I don't think we'll be disappointed with today's section. So if you're in chapter 2, I'm going to begin reading at verse 1. We'll look at the first 12 verses today. On the third day, a wedding took place at Canaan in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman? Why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, uh, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you've saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Canaan of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, they went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed a few days. Lord, I thank you for your word, for the truth that's in your word. Lord, I pray that you would give us eyes that see and ears that hear the truth that's in your word and let it have its full impact on us that we might be more like Jesus. Amen? Amen. This chapter starts off with the words, on the third day, on the third day. It would have taken two days to to go, uh, to reach Galilee, Canaan and Galilee from Bethany. And this was the third day. They had traveled. Um, I think subtly too, this is a nod to the resurrection which happened on the third day. But let's, let's take a look at three things today. I want to take a look at weddings in Hebrew culture. And I want to take a look at Jesus' dialogue with his mother Mary. And then I want to address the question, why water into wine? Why this? So let's look at, at weddings in Hebrew culture to begin with. Each week as I prepare uh, my sermons, it's, it's my custom to draw from as many resources as possible. I, I've collected a vast library over the decades that I've, I've served the Lord. And so I have lots to draw from. Even without them, online you can get your hands on almost anything that, that you're looking for. And, um, and, and then I draw upon my, just my, my own experience as well. Kind of mishmash it all together. And that's, that's kind of what I've done each week. I did come across a resource this week, especially this part here on Hebrew uh, weddings. There's a, a pastor of an Eden Wesleyan church in uh, 
Chesney, uh, South Carolina. His name is Richard Holt. I don't know Richard, never met him before, but found some of his resources online. And for this section, um, I was able to draw upon his resources. So I don't know. I think it's cool to give credit uh, where credit's due. You know? Scripture says there's nothing new under the sun. Oh, somebody's getting it from somebody, you know. And, but it's nice to give credit. Anyway. Um, Jesus' first remoted, uh, recorded miracle in John's Gospel took place in a town called Canaan of Galilee. And the event was a wedding. Canaan was a rather inconspicuous little town that lay just outside of Nazareth. By all available research, Canaan had no social prominence in its day. As a matter of fact, it took scholars some 1,800 years to accurately identify just where was this place. And so not a whole lot happened there. This is, this is Canaan and Galilee's claim to fame, that Jesus' first miracle is there. Up until then, it was just a regular kind of little town. Now, Scripture clearly tells us, it's, it's specified that um, Jesus and his disciples had been invited to the wedding. Mary, Mary was there, and um, apparently Jesus' brothers as well. In verse 12, it says that that whole group left. So if they all left together, I don't know, I think it's safe to assume that they were all there together, right? Now, social standing um, in Hebrew culture, certainly when it comes to things like attending a wedding, would have been significant. Um, it's a safe bet to say that this was probably a peasant wedding. Otherwise, Mary, who would have been considered a peasant, she wouldn't have been invited. There would have been, she wouldn't have had the social standing. She wouldn't have had the gravitas, the, the oomph, the clout, the, to even be worthy of having an invitation. See, Jesus hadn't been revealed yet. It wasn't like, ooh, her son is this famous preacher. Everybody's all excited about him. Let's invite Mary to the wedding. Maybe her son will come. This is before all that. And so there's a good chance speculating that this was probably a, a peasant wedding. So I just think it's interesting to note that Jesus' ministry, like his birth, began in a small, unimportant town to common, everyday people. Right? I like that about Jesus. It tells me the fact that he would perform his first miracle in Canaan, that he was born in a manger in Bethlehem, that there's nothing too small, there's no place too out of the way, that he won't show up and he won't do what he does. We don't have to be at a, a major international hub. I, I've had the privilege over the years of being involved with some, some significant, um, significant, some well-known established ministries and part of the dialogue that goes on in those ministries is, well, where should we locate? And they want to find an international hub. They want to find a city that's large enough that has international flights directly in and out of it. Because the, the main speaker or the, or the key players in that ministry, they're going to travel a lot. And so they, go on, they, want to, they want to be in a specific spot because strategically, logistically, financially, it makes sense to be in those kind of hubs. They wouldn't be in Bethlehem. They wouldn't be in Canaan. They probably wouldn't be on Prince Edward Island. It's just too hard to get in and out of these places, you know. God doesn't have that problem, right? He, he does what he wants with whom he wants, wherever he wants. I like this. It ought to give us hope. We don't have to live in the right place or be the right people. We're his, and that's all that matters. Hmm. So, as in most cultures, weddings are a big deal. 
They were a big deal in, in Hebrew culture. Most cultures have their own specific, their own unique protocols that go along uh, with how weddings are done. We've lived all over the U.S., and I, I've done weddings all different places. And I can't tell you, just for the same nation, how each region has its own different emphasis on how a wedding's done. In, in New York City, it's this huge affair. It goes on for hours and hours and hours. Even the ceremony itself can be an hour to two hours long. And so I can remember the first time I went to, uh, attended, I wasn't even performing it. I just attended a wedding outside of New York City. We, we were invited to a friend's wedding in, in West Virginia, about eight hours away, but very rural compared to the you know, mega urban center that New York City is. And so it took us four hours to drive from where we were living at the time to this wedding. And we get there, and the ceremony lasts about 15 minutes, if that. And then they had some finger sandwiches in the church basement, and it was over. I mean, in 45 minutes, the parking lot's empty, and we just drove four hours to get here. I was like, I'm looking at Nadine like, Toto, we're not in Kansas anymore, you know? This is different. They had a very different culture in just a few hours away. And how they did the wedding, well, the same thing's true in Hebrew culture. They had some unique distinctives. And this is some of the things I picked up on some of those resources I found. So, for example... If the bride was a virgin, the wedding would occur on a Wednesday. I didn't know that. If the bride was a widow, the wedding would occur on a Thursday. I'd, I'd never heard that before. I thought that was interesting. Now, typically, the wedding ceremony would take place late in the evening after a time of feasting. The father of the bride would take his daughter on his arm and with the wedding party in tow would parade through the streets of the village so everyone could come out and, and congratulate the bride. I kind of like that. That's kind of cool. And finally, the wedding party would arrive at the home of the groom, that place that he prepared for his betrothed, that place that he prepared for, that he'd gone away and prepared this place for her, right? And this is where they would arrive, for his fiancée, as it were. That's what we, the term we use today. And this was, this was no short ceremony. Actually, you know, I thought it was interesting, too, that the ceremony would take place at the front door of the groom. So as she's making this transition from, from daughter to wife, as she's making this transition from her father to her husband, from single life to married life, it's going to go through a doorway. It's going to transition, and it's going to be the doorway into her new life. I love the imagery of it. I think it's beautiful. I don't think I could talk my daughter into any of this, but I think this is kind of cool. And... Um, and this was no short ceremony. The festivities lasted for days. They would put New Yorkers to shame. Truly a time of great celebration. And so after the wedding ceremony, the bride and groom now, they walked through the streets, accompanied by flaming torches, the whole um, party of people following along with them. And the wedding party took the longest route through the village so that as many people as possible could wish them well. Now, there was no honeymoon, as we understand it in this culture, Nope, the, the bride and groom in their new home together. They had open house probably for a week. And throughout that week, they dressed like royalty. They, they wore fancy clothes. Sometimes they'd even worn makeshift crowns on their heads. Really, whatever they desired, whatever they spoke, what they received. It was their time. Now, in this context, it was the responsibility of the groom's family to provide all the refreshments for this week-long uh, celebration. And that's where we find ourselves now, at the beginning of chapter 2 in John's Gospel. So suddenly, 
the host discovers uh, that they've run out of wine. Um, maybe they had more guests than they anticipated. Maybe it's all the Jesus' friends he brought with them. Hey, they were fishermen. You guys know some fishermen? <laughs> uh, I'm just joking. I don't know. Either way, this is a major social faux pas, right? They, you can't run out of wine uh, at the wedding. Um, failing to provide adequately, adequately for, the, for the guests involved pretty significant social disgrace. Um, in closely knit communities in Jesus' days, such an error would never be forgotten. It had been a stain on, on this family for a long time. It would have haunted the newly married couple for, for weeks, months. Maybe they'd never get out from under this stigma. <coughs> small towns then, like small towns today, good news travels fast, bad news travels faster, right? Now they've been marching throughout the whole town. Everybody knows this is going on. They run out of wine. Now, though in the Hebrew culture, public drunkenness was considered a disgrace um, and not often practiced, running out of wine was even a greater disgrace than that. And the host could have actually been sued. There could have been legal action taken against the host for, for a breach to provide proper hospitality for his guest. So interesting. So different, the culture. You know, additionally, the rabbis, uh, their, wine was a, a, a rabbinical symbol of joy. And the, and the Jewish rabbis had a saying. They said, without wine, there is no joy. So the run out of wine would have been the equivalent of admitting that neither the guest nor the bride and groom were happy about this event. So running out of wine at, at this wedding, it's a big deal. In their culture, the way they did weddings, this was a pretty big deal. So some speculations, just, I don't have any conclusive evidence, really just asking questions. Why did they run out of wine? Well, scripture doesn't really say. Could it be that the groom's family didn't have the resources to provide enough, or they didn't have the resources to go get more? I don't know, it doesn't really say. All we know is that there's some panic at this point over the fact that they find themselves in these circumstances. And why was Mary privy to this concern? How did she find out? You know, did she overhear a conversation? Could it be that she was friends with the groom's mother and somehow was aware that this was going on? Was Jesus a friend of the groom's brother? I don't know. Uh, scripture doesn't say how they ran out of wine. Um, it doesn't, but it doesn't, say how, it doesn't say how Mary knows about it. But this we do know from Scripture. Mary's aware that there's a lack of wine and she brings this concern to her son. Now, so that's a little bit of history on the background of, of Hebrew weddings, just a little bit, just touching on it. But let's, let's address now this, this very brief dialogue that goes on between uh, Jesus and his mother Mary in John chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. I'll read those verses again for you. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman? Why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. They have no more wine. Why did Jesus, excuse me, why did Mary ask Jesus to do something about this? I mean, it wasn't like he was a wine merchant or he could have, you know, he could have provided for it in some natural means. So why would she ask Jesus? Well, she knows that this is a problem. And Mary's husband is obviously absent. 
We know that Mary is there. We know that Jesus is there. We know that Jesus' brothers are there and that Jesus' disciples are there. If Joseph was there, if Mary's husband, her earthly husband, the earthly father of Jesus, if he was there, he'd have been listed among everybody who else is there. There's no mention of Joseph past um, Jesus' early life. It's, it's a pretty safe bet to assume that Joseph has passed on from now. There's no record of how in Scripture, but it's a pretty safe bet. Jesus, as the oldest son, he would have been, certainly would have been considered the man of the family, probably the head of the household. Um, You've got to realize, Jesus is 30 years old at this point. He's, he's not only fulfilled that role, he's probably done it for quite some time. <laughs> Everyone would have looked to him as the oldest son. I'm the oldest of four children. As the oldest son, I know what it's like to be the member of the family who's looked to when, when the parents or one of the parents aren't there. You're left in charge. Do we have any firstborn children here? Nadine and I always have this conversation about the difference between the oldest child and the youngest child. She's not really impressed. She does this. You know what this is? The world's <laughs> smallest violin. That's what she tells me. But as oldest children, we got responsibilities to carry, you know. Jesus is the oldest son. So he'd been used to being the one that his mother would turn to in the absence of Joseph. It would have been natural for Mary to turn to him, to fix problems, to, to deal with situations. This, this could be a natural way of looking at this circumstance. But I think there might be a, a more spiritual or more supernatural way of looking at why would Mary turn to Jesus? Mary knew that her son was unique, right? The angel appears to her and tells her that she's pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Not everybody has that experience. I'm sure she didn't forget it, right? If that wasn't enough, then you know, she had prophetic words from her cousin Elizabeth. And when they brought Jesus to the temple, Simeon and Anna both had prophetic words for her son. She was visited from the Magi, for goodness sake. No doubt, in the childhood and in the relationship developed between mother and son over his early years, I'm sure there, there, there were some unusual or unique experiences that took place that, that was testimony to, to Mary that her son is who the angel said that he was. So she asked Jesus because she knew he had the ability, I think, because she knew he had the power to actually do something to change these natural circumstances. And there's another factor. Keep in mind that Mary has lived with reproach for over 30 years, right? She, get, she becomes pregnant under unusual circumstances. Yeah, that's right, Mary. The Holy Spirit did this to you, right? It, there had to be suspicion. There had to be reproach. There had to be lots of gossip going on, right? Good news travels fast. Bad news travels faster. So she's lived with this for a long time, knowing in her heart what the truth is, and also knowing that no one around her probably believes it. So there's a day of vindication coming for her. She's waited 30 years for this. Maybe with the public display of divine favor at Jesus' baptism, and with the fact that he'd now begun the process of gathering disciples, maybe Mary could feel this, this day of vindication approaching. I don't think there's a stretch to kind of see that that might be a factor of play. Maybe it's what spurred on her boldness. Or maybe this is just the, just the interaction that happens between a loving son and, and a loving mother. 
Either way, she didn't force the issue. She addressed it. She left the matters in Jesus' hands. Now, Jesus' response to his interest, he says, Woman, why do you involve me? <laughs> Did a little bit of research into this. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown's commentary on John 2 says that the, the use of the term woman was not a term of disrespect in the language of that day. And they refer to Jesus' use of the term in a very tender example um, at the cross in John 19, verses 26 and 27. Remember, Jesus is hanging at the cross. He's near death. And verse 26 says, When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved, the author of this gospel, standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son, and to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Okay? So the term, it's, it's not a term of disrespect. Now, I can tell you, in my house, if I'd said to my mother, woman, right, I had slapped upside the head with something, okay? It wouldn't fly in my house. She looked at me and said, what? And if my son ever said to Nadine, woman, <laughs> she'd let him have it too. So though it doesn't work nowadays, it was okay back then. And I think it's important to know that because it could sound like he's being rough with Mary or being inappropriate with her. But apparently it was an acceptable term. Uh, back in that day. And then he says to her this. He says, my hour has not yet come. Now, if nothing else, this statement reveals that an hour was coming where he, where he would be revealed. His hour had not yet come, but there was an hour coming and that they both understood it. They both knew what that meant. It was understood between them, enough for her to ask and enough for him to respond. In this way, that there's an hour coming for Jesus to come out of hiding, as it were, and to reveal himself to the Hebrew people as their long-awaited Messiah. Which begs the question, why the disguise? Why the hiding? Now, when I first got here, I, I taught a, message, a series of messages on the Father's love, and we addressed this. Kind of referenced some materials from Wayne Jacobson in his book, He Loves Me. Why did Jesus come disguised? He's 30 years old now. Right? He was as much the Son of God, fully God and fully man. The Word made flesh dwelt among us, as this John chapter 1 told us, in the manger as he is 30 years later at the wedding. Why, why this disguise? Why in hiding all this time? And I believe it's for this reason. It's for the reason of relationship. It's so that God could have relationship with man the way he always wanted to, the way he had it with Adam and Eve in the garden. They would walk in the garden in the cool of the day as friends. How difficult it must be for the super famous or the uber wealthy to have true friends. A lot of times the friends that they rely upon are those who knew them before they were famous or before they were wealthy because those are true friends. Once it's revealed that you're powerful, then you, there's always the suspicion that somebody has an agenda. I've known some famous people. They are very, very sketchy or skittish when it comes to the, the concept of letting people in close because people have come in close and taken advantage of them. How much more so would it have been if it was revealed from the very beginning that this is the Son of God? How do you ever have relationship? I believe Jesus came in the disguise that the hour had not yet come, an hour that God himself had determined because he wanted to foster friendship 
with his disciples. Everything God does is relational. If we miss that, we miss the central core of the gospel. The Trinity existed in perfect relationship before anything existed. And in their creation of it, in their creating us, is to welcome us into that relationship. This is another, this is another clue. This is another piece of evidence pointing in that direction. Why come in hiding? Why had the hour not yet come? Because it was about developing relationships. Unhindered, unfiltered friendship with the objects of his extravagant affection, us. Mary doesn't argue with Jesus' response. She simply turns to the servants and speaks her very last recorded words in Scripture. She says, do whatever he tells you. Now, the recorded words of Mary in Scripture are few. However, I think it's good for us to pay attention to the words that are recorded. We would do well to follow Mary's direction in our own lives. How the world might be different if just a handful of us did whatever Jesus told us to do. John Wimber, the founder of the Vineyard, used to say this, that the Christian life is as simple and as difficult as this. Listen and obey. Listen to what God tells you to do, then obey him. A question that we ought to ask ourselves today. I think Christians ought to ask themselves regularly. Churches ought to ask themselves. God, what are you doing? And how can we do it with you? God, what are you doing? And how can we do it with you? I'm thinking we might be more fruitful doing that rather than praying, oh God, we're doing this, please bless it. How about if we just do what he's already doing? His blessing's on it, he's doing it. Do whatever he tells you. And then we have the account from verses 6 to 12 where water is actually turned back into wine. Let me just read those, those six verses for you again. And then I'll expound upon them. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. And then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the, the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside. He said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you've saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Canaan of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. <clears throat> After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples, and they stayed for a few days. So some observations. Jesus began his miracle by using what was at hand. He could have supplied more wine in any number of ways, but he started with what was there. My experience is that when God moves in a place, he starts with what's already there. And he did it uh, in a way that included uh, participation. 
from the people who are available. Again, that's how he does it. He uses the people who are here. And I love this. I love that what he provided was both quality and quantity. It's just part of the very nature and character of our God. What he provided for them that day had both quality and quantity. It was called the choice wine. They saved the best for last, right? The best wine. Between 120 and 150 gallons. Some, some re uh, reference material I looked at said could be 180 gallons. Or another way to put it, 680 liters of wine. That's a whole lot of wine, man. It would take us a while to carry that many bottles of wine from the car out to this room. That's a lot of wine. What a great wedding present. This reminds me of God's love expressed for us in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. I spent a lot of time preaching on that verse when I first got here. It says, see what great love the Father has lavished on us. That we should be called children of God, and that's what we are. See what great love. That's talking about the quality. See what great quality of love God has lavished. That's the quantity. He's lavishly. A great quantity of great quality of love. See what he's lavished on us, that we should be called sons and daughters of God. Perhaps when John wrote that epistle, was he remembering this wedding day? <laughs> That he, was, that he participated in and watched Jesus turn all that water into wine? Was he thinking about the quality and quantity of that on a wedding day, a day of covenant, a day of love, intimate, loving, romantic relationship? Is that what he was remembering when he wrote that epistle so many years later? I love that this is a picture of that quality and quantity. That's what we get from Jesus. Choice wine. The master of the banquet's comment to the bridegroom, I think, if we just be fair here, is a reasonable indication that what we're talking about here is alcoholic beverage, right? Now, some of you may have come from religious traditions that said this was not alcoholic wine. I think, it's, I think that's tough to come up with that. You've got to do some pretty snazzy theological gymnastics to get a Puritan Western worldview mindset into that, okay? I just think it's... I mean, what do we call non-alcoholic wine? We call it grape juice. <laughs> we call it vinegar. We don't call it choice wine, right? We don't call it the best wine. Right? And the whole, the whole dialogue about, hey, people waiting, they usually serve the best stuff after the guests have had too much to drink. What does that mean? They've had enough at this point. They don't really care what they're drinking. They've already drank the good stuff. That's why you serve the good stuff first. You check out the cheap stuff later. There's alcohol contact here. You may disagree, but I don't know. Anyway, David Guzik, one of the commentators I like, he says this. I think he makes a good comment. He says, some go to great lengths to show that what Jesus made here really was grape juice. Well, some find that line of thinking convincing. Um, it is not the opinion of the author. Uh, certainly not of John. Good wine is good wine, not good grape juice. It is true that wine in that day... Uh, as commonly served, had a much lower content of alcohol than modern wine, but it's still wine. So anyway, that's just a, a side note. Let's be real. So why water to wine? 
Verse 11 tells us, What Jesus did here in Canaan of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory to his disciples. And his disciples believed him. The first sign. Remember last week I, I, used a, I referred to a theological principle, the, the law of first mention. Remember I mentioned that last week? Well, here we have another first. We have the first miracle. We have the first sign. Signs tell us where we're going. The first of the signs in John's gospel is, it's a miracle of transformation. Something was one substance, and now it's another substance. It wasn't like wine was added to the water. It was water, and now it's wine. It's, it's been transformed. It, there's been a metamorphosis. It's not what it was. It's a sign of the old ways of the law and the ceremonies and purification. Remember, this water was used in the ceremonies for ceremonial cleaning, according to the Hebrew law. It's from the old ways of the law and ceremony and purification to the new life in Jesus. It's a really wonderful picture of the old versus the new. Moses turned water into blood, showing that the the law results in death. You can look at Exodus 7 for that if you want. But Jesus' first miracle turns water into wine, showing that gladness and joy are part of his new work. This acts out in practical ways what John said in, early on in, in chapter 1, verse 17, where he says the law came through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And I think it's also a pretty good indication of John 10.10, 10, where Jesus says, The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I come that you may have life and have it to the full. And by the way, here's 680 liters of wine to get you there. <laughs> you <know? coughs> I think it's fair to say that water is like a relationship with God under the old covenant, and wine is like a relationship with God under the new covenant. The wine was from water, just like the new covenant is from the old covenant. The wine was better than the water. The new covenant is better than the old covenant. And this is new wine. Such a great metaphoric picture. Of course, it speaks of the promise of the Holy Spirit. That new wine must be put into new wineskins. It speaks to me of God's amazing grace and his extravagant love. There's no measure. Listen, wherever you're at today, you ever come to church on a Sunday morning and just feel like 10 pounds of sin in a five-pound bag? You ever feel like, oh, I'm not worthy, I'm not worthy? There's no measure to God's grace for you. You will never outrun his grace. Your sin will never outreach his grace for you. You can't do it. You're not that powerful. You're not. You don't have that much power. You don't have it in you to sin more than he has grace to pour out upon you. There's no measure to God's grace. God himself will provide enough grace to meet our needs. There's no measure to God's love. There's no measure to his love. He's infinite. He is love. His love is immeasurable. There's nothing that you can do to cause God to love you more. There's nothing that you could do to cause God to love you less. 
He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is who he is. And the scripture tells us that God is love. He would have to deny his nature. You cannot outlast his love. You've done nothing to earn God's love and God's grace. There's nothing that you could do to lose God's love or God's grace. It's a free gift, right? We know that from scripture. We all know that his grace is a free gift. Just like the wine. <laughs> Just like the wine at the wedding. It came in abundance. There's an Italian word called abundanza, right? It means abundance. My grandmother used to say that sometimes. She'd serve us food. She'd always put too much on the plate. Abundanza. Manja, manja, abundanza, she would say. It comes with great abundance. And it's a free gift. His love for us, his grace for us is a free gift for us. Just like the wine at Canaan, that very first sign, that first miracle was a free gift at the wedding. Now in John 2, 1, it says this miracle happened on the third day. I may mention to that in the beginning. And that it reveals God's glory. I, again, I think that John's hinting at the idea that Jesus shows forth his glory on the third day. Another nod to the resurrection. So what application can we make out of this? What do you do when the wine runs out in your life? What do you do? You ever have those times? It just feels like the wine's run out, you know? I feel like I'm low on the spirit. I feel like I'm low on the life of God within me. Come on, I'm not the only one who feels that way sometimes, right? What do we do when the wine runs out? We follow Mary's example. We do whatever Jesus tells us to do. Whatever he tells us to do, that's what, he, that's what we do. I think it's another really good indication for the need that we need to have eyes that see. We need, to, we need to have eyes that see what Jesus is doing. We need to have ears that hear him. It's essential. It's essential to our Christian walk. We need to be able to hear God. If Wimba's right and that, the, and that the Christian life is, is no more difficult, no more easy than to listen and obey, we need the ability to hear. Without it, how do we obey? The life of the Spirit, to have this new wine, is not optional. It's essential. It's required to live the Christian life. Matter of fact, I would say that without it, we can't live the Christian life. We can, we can fake it. We can put on some religious mask and make ourselves look good. Maybe, maybe, maybe make ourselves look better than everybody else around us. But we can't live the Christian life without the Spirit. He left it for us for this reason, so we could have relationship with Him. And in the context of that friendship with God, we see what He's doing. We hear what he says to us. We follow where he leads. That's what this is all about. So what do you do when the wine runs out of your life? We follow Mary's counsel. Do whatever he tells you. So let's pray. Why don't we stand and pray? Lord, I pray for myself and for my friends today. Lord, I pray that you would give us eyes that see what you're doing. 
Give us ears that can hear you. Lord, I pray that you would remove from our lives physical, emotional, spiritual, philosophical, theological, remove every hindrance to our being able to see more clearly what you're doing and hear more clearly what you would say to us. I pray, Lord, for my friends that we could see what you're doing. I pray for myself and for them as well that we could hear you with great clarity and then from that place with great faith bolstered by the confidence of our friendship with you that we'd obey you that we do the simple things that we do the profound things we do the ridiculous things we do the outrageous things that you lead us to do Lord I pray that not only would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear but give us hearts to do whatever you tell us to do that our hearts would be yielded to you Lord we offer ourselves to you and I ask that you would transform our lives. Lord, I pray that you would turn our water into wine. Turn the, the remaining remnants, the parts of our lives that are still water, and turn us into wine. Do it supernaturally. Turn our water into wine. Lord, oh God, turn my water into wine. And Lord, I pray that you'd fill us with your Holy Spirit. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I love you guys. It looks like it's snowing pretty good out there today. It's going to... Yep, there's a fox out there. Why don't you guys um, help us clean up, then have a, a safe trip home, and enjoy the rest of your weekend.